Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey to the new age of enlightenment. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea. A new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, deep political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific technological elite and when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body the soul of our country but take my word for it this scourge will stop what's up oddities welcome to the Oddcast, and i thank you once again for listening thank you for taking the time to check out the show it's great to be back with you And uh, this week, I'll get right to the point, I decided I wanted to do a show about a morgue, which is an institution based on Rosicrucianism. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. Now, if you don't know what a morgue stands for, it stands for Ancient Mystical Order of the Rosicrucius. Now, to give you guys a little bit of background with the Rosicrucian faction called Amork. I'm going to go over some information about their history. But, you know, as I got to researching Amork, I realized, wow, I can't kind of leave out some of the much older Rosicrucian history and their origins. And their origins are somewhat murky, if any of you guys know anything about them. They're related to the Masons, but the Rosicrucians were, in fact, before the Masons. And, uh, you know, there's also a a theosophical link there. Uh, Rudolf Steiner even called it theosophical Rosicrucianism, and others have as well. So I'll give you a little bit of history about Amork, and then we can get into a little bit of the origins of the Rosicrucians in general. Uh, this will probably be a two-parter, and what inspired me to do this episode, or these two episodes, or whatever, is I found out that there was a couple books by a former Amork member. Uh, Pierre Freeman was his name, or is his name, and 
he wrote these tell-all books about Amork. The first one is called The Prisoner of San Jose, and the second one is called Amork Unmasked. Now, the thing that's interesting about these books, other than the details he tells about Amork, is you can't find these books anymore. I think there's a couple of copies on Amazon for several hundred dollars, but you cannot find the PDFs for sale anywhere. Uh, I actually found a used bookstore, and they had the Amork Unmasked. I ordered it, decent price, just like 25 bucks. I mean, that's expensive, but for a hard-to-find book, not too bad. Well, a week later, they said, I don't know why this was approved, but we don't have this book in stock and haven't had it in stock in ages. I looked all over the place. I wanted to pay several hundred dollars for a book, so I looked around and looked around until I was able to find an ebook of A Morgan Masked and Prisoner of San Jose. So I've read the first one, which is Prisoner of San Jose. And we'll go into the this fellow's background, this Pierre fellow, later in the show. But so now let's go into a mork, a little bit of their history, if you're not familiar, and kind of give you an idea of what we're talking about here. A mork was founded by former Ordo Templi Orientis Grand Magus Spencer Lewis, according to the author Joel Levy. Lewis had been an advertising executive and he used his skills to build a Mork into an international success story, opening branches in France and forging links with German societies, eventually attracting over 250,000 members. He used the order's growing income to build a college, a planetarium at its headquarters in San Jose, California, along with a highly respected Egyptian museum that houses an important collection of ancient artifacts. I believe he started a Mork in 1909, if my memory serves me correctly. Levy goes on to say, Spencer Lewis himself built up a fascination with the lost continent of Lemuria, imagined by Helena Blavatsky and the Theosophical Society as a counterpart of Atlantis, where previous races of humans had acted out millions of years of history before our own era. This led to the bizarre belief that Lemurian super-beings in magically-powered flying saucers lived in California's Mount Shasta, and a sponsored several expeditions in the area in the 1930s to hunt for secret cities below the mountain. And so that whole idea of the Ascended Masters or the Great White Brotherhood living in Mount Shasta that was really pushed by Mark and Claire Prophet, the New Age gurus who started the Church Universal and Triumphant, which I'm probably going to do a show on in the very near future. Uh, you know, their daughters, they had two daughters, one who was very much against their church and their teachings. Uh, Mark died pretty early on, I think, in their... I don't want to call it a ministry, whatever you want to call that whole thing, their cult. But, uh, you know, Claire took it on and wrote a ton of books. And uh, one of the daughters came out against it in her teenage years and was vocal about that. And the other was very 
pro what was going on there. But since then, she's written a tell-all book about it, and uh, I haven't read that yet, but uh, she does speaking engagements and stuff like that. So I think she's still a new ager, but her mom actually developed Alzheimer's, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, you know, there's a there's a biography about Claire Prophet, and I, I don't know much about that, but uh, she's kind of an interesting figure who doesn't get much attention, but uh, apparently... They were quite influential in the 80s, 70s and 80s. So to get back to Mork, though, uh, Spencer Lewis's remains, the founder of, of Amork, his remains are there somewhere on the premises in San Jose in their uh, compound, if you will. And that reminds me of Albert Pike's remains being there at the temple in Washington, D.C., I couldn't help but uh, think of that. Anyway, you know, there's a lot of controversy about this uh, founder, Harvey Spencer Lewis. And, uh, you know, it seems to me like as I got deeper into it that Amor basically took a ton of the beliefs from various systems of the past and kind of put them together, you know, from the mystery schools. So the author, David B. Barrett, says in his book, Secret Religions, there are links and cross-influences between Rosicrucianism, the mystical side of Freemasonry, alchemy, astrology, hermetic philosophy, the Western mystery tradition, and the philosophy of esoteric Christianity. I'd add Kabbalah in there as well. And out of these was born the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Supposedly, to the Rosicrucians, the letter I-N-R-I, which is said to be their sacred word. You know, Master Masons are running around looking for that sacred word. And that is the initials that supposedly appeared on the cross of Jesus. And to the Rosicrucians, it's supposed to mean, through fire, nature is reborn whole. Uh, you know, to get a little bit into the origins of Rosicrucianism itself, in the book, The Morning of the Magicians, and you can find this quote pretty much in any book that's talking about Rosicrucianism, because this is kind of where they supposedly started. It says, The inhabitants of Paris woke to find the walls of their city covered with posters bearing the following message. We deputies of the principal college of the Brethren of the Rosy Cross are amongst you in this town, visibly and invisibly, through the grace of the Most High, to whom the hearts of all just men are turned in order to save our fellow men from the error of death. So, obviously, Rosicrucianism predates the Theosophical Society by decades, by centuries, uh, I kind of, you know, because Theosophy is more known to have started the New Age, and Madame Blavatsky is kind of the queen of the New Age, if you will, modern New Age. But really, it seems like it actually came out of Rosicrucianism, which, which was a conglomeration of all these other mystery schools. And uh, a lot of these ideas we're seeing in the New Age, the Great Reset, and the New Normal and the order out of chaos have come from Rosicrucianism originally, I think. 
And like a lot of these belief systems, I'm sure many of these belief systems started out good, with good intentions. But when you have this secrecy, and when you have this ability for certain people to know things that the general public doesn't, it's only a matter of time before they are used in a nefarious way. And this has been going on for, you know, centuries or longer, much longer. And we can look back to even the ancient Egyptians, which if you are to listen to all these mystery school occult teachers, it was a utopia. There was no fighting. There was no evil. It was just this great, wonderful thing where these pharaohs ruled and had these you know, they had this hidden information that only they were privy to, but yet it was a utopia. And, you know, a lot of these people like to push that the history has been written by the winners, but that obviously never applies to Egypt for some reason. I don't know. I think I would question that because that goes against everything we've ever seen in humanity. But, uh, you know, that is another tangent. So, <clears throat> when... Uh, the Rosicrucians refer to God, they refer to him as the cosmic. And so Pierre Freeman says, A Mork speaks of the seven true mystical organizations, which are all from 17th and the 18th century Europe. The only ones of these that are still in existence are A Mork and the Freemasons. But, according to A Mork, the modern Freemasons are a sleepy organization meaning that they are not the authentic organization they ought to be. Thus, Amor claims to be the only true representation of a mystical organization on earth. So notice they did not include the Theosophical Society in there, or the Theosophists in general. And there are 12 temple degrees if you join Amorc. And uh, I went on their website, amorc.org, and you're able to sign up for their email and get some free PDFs, which I did. And now they're sending me these uh, emails, probably two a week, trying to get me to join. And you can go on there and read some things on their website about the organization. And they're fairly straightforward in there. Uh, 150 bucks a year to join. And uh, they give you all these books. I assume that most of them are in ebook form now. Uh, and you go through these weekly, and we'll talk about that. And this Pierre guy, who was in the order for over 20 years, as I said before, uh, really, really got into it. And um, it's kind of a hard luck story he has. So anyway, when you first join, they have the introductory lessons. And I'll give you the titles of the introductory lessons. It's Illusory Nature of Time and Space, Human Consciousness and Cosmic Consciousness, Rosicrucian Technique of Meditation, Development of the Initiation, Introduction to Human Aura, Telepathy, Metaphysical Healing, Mystical Sounds, and Spiritual Alchemy. And they talk about these sections of lessons. The set of lessons are called atriums. So you get your first atrium, structure and composition of matter, power of thought, the creative power of visualization, 
mental projection and telepathy, the law of the triangle. When you get done with that one, you have your second atrium, origin of diseases, influence of thoughts on health, mystical art of breathing. Breathing is a huge, huge thing in Rosicrucianism. Healing treatments, perception of the aura, awakening the psychic consciousness, and mystical sounds. Third atrium, the great religious movements, the nature of the soul, purpose of our spiritual evolution, reincarnation and karma, good and evil and free will, and intuition, inspiration, and of course, illumination. So, you got to have illumination in there, right? Pierre goes on to say that in the beginning of the neophyte's journey before commencing with the official monograph series. So Pierre goes on to say, there are two main sections to the study course, the neophyte and the temple sections, except for the first introductory eight lessons, each of which is titled and numbered Mandamus. Mandamus is spelled M-A-N-D-A-M-U-S, and I guess I need to look up that word and find its origins. In the beginning of the neophyte's journey, before commencing with the official monograph series, Amork provides the new member with a set of about eight introductory papers, bound into a booklet called a mandamus. Inside the first mandamus collection is another title booklet called Liber 7-7. Liber means book in Latin. This booklet contains the information about a concept called the celestial sanctum. Of course, one is reminded of Crowley and his writings with Liber 777. The other lessons throughout the sections are titled and numbered monographs. The monographs, small treatises, that comprise the weekly lesson of a Mork are the key to a Mork's powerful indoctrination techniques. The amazing thing is that the monographs, which encourage the development of a home sanctum, a place for meditation and study, are sufficient to fully indoctrinate the majority of members. Now, Pierre, because he was in the AMORC institution so long, he says that you know he was relying on them to make his life better in all these different ways. But looking back, you know, he really kind of talks about how it was a slow process of indoctrination. And it really reminds me, I think we can apply this to various cults and uh, various mystery schools, modern mystery schools, because that's what Amork took these, you know, took their uh, system from. And I think that a lot of these people, these initiates and, and, and people who are in these cults and stuff like that, I think that the things we're going to learn about Amork and their techniques and how they slowly kind of pull people in are a great representation from all these various groups. And I think that uh, a lot of former cult members will tell you that. And so Pierre makes that pretty plain in his book. And I've started to read Amork Unmasked, which is the second book, and he really gets into more of their process and the psychological techniques that they use to kind of pull people in and keep them there with the promise, you know, this uh, kind of vague promise of 
really uh, personal salvation, if you will, like becoming God, which is pretty much what the Masons teach and some of the other New Age institutions. You know, you're going to become your own God. And it's really about, you know, dangling the carrot and keeping you paying those dues, those membership dues. So I think that's something we can think about as well. This concept of transference can also be seen in the very diverse relationships in ordinary life. A prisoner might, after a time, transfer this autonomy to a professional interrogator. A student might surrender his autonomy to a teacher, or a citizen may give up his independence to a political leader. I thought that was interesting because... Really, you could apply this to political parties and the cult of personality that goes along with presidents, especially. And, you know, we've seen that in the last, you know, 20 years, last five years more than ever, or maybe 15 years, if you want to include Obama in there. Um, it's just unbelievable how people are taken in, you know, by these cults of personality. It's, you know, they go from. It's kind of like once you join a group, you could be the greatest person in the world, have the greatest intentions. But once you join that group, it seems like damn near every time when you become that official member, defending the group, defending the herd, defending the tribal leaders becomes more important than what was wrong or right in the first place, you know, it, it takes precedence because you got to defend them. And if you have the opposition, an opposition party, opposition tribe, institution, opposition leader, then you can't let that leader or that other group look better than yours. So really, it's just one of those things that I think humans have to combat constantly. They've got to fight that urge to always defend the herd, always defend the leader, and stop and take a deep breath and think about what is right. What was my original goal? What are my principles? Why did I take these stances in the first place? So I think we can apply that to a lot of things in our lives. So Pierre goes on to say, in the case of a Mork, through a manipulation of the student's view of the unique authority of the order, the exalted power of the Imperator, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but that's your leader in Amork. And the Amork leaders and the alleged presence of the invisible masters in the training, the monographs themselves assume a unique role in the life of the student. And he gives the example, one of the first things they want you to do, once you join and you start going through these monographs, is when you're out in public, they tell you to not stare, but think on a person who's around you, like if you're at a dinner party or something like that, and start thinking about one individual. Start focusing on them, thinking about them, kind of meditate on them until you can feel their vibration, the vibration of their body. Now, one thing I've learned from studying these different groups is so much of what all these various ones teach really is the power of suggestion. And if they put forth that you can do something 
you start believing you can do it in your mind. And they know that, of course. And people start believing that they can do that. Now, I'm not saying there aren't certain things that are true in these mystery schools. You know, everything has some truth to it. But how much of what we hear in occult teachings is the power of suggestion and how much of it is reality? People are told that they can do this, that, or the other. They're told all these things are real. You know, numerous things in life and how much of them are real? Or we just think they are because we're told they are and then we start believing that this, that, or the other is true. And we could think back to even government policies and the so-called intentions of those policies. But anyway, I thought that was interesting and weird, but, you know, uh, they want you to practice out-of-body experiences. The higher initiates are told not to ever tell the lower initiates anything about the experiments that they are studying you know, so that's kind of the same with Freemasonry. You don't talk about, you know, the degrees with lower degree members. Talking about the celestial sanctum. And he says, basically, a Mork claims that time does not exist for a Rosicrucian. Then he says, except, of course, when your membership fee is due. In fact, that time becomes so real at this point that you become very aware that if your membership commitments aren't met on time you will be automatically cut from the egregore. Severing one's connection to the egregore, the sacred pattern of the order on other planes, and that's what the egregore is. It's the sacred pattern on other planes. So it's this other invisible world that you're told. I'm not saying there's nothing at all to that, but I'm saying the power of suggestion can really mess with people's heads. So he says, severing one's connection to the egregore, the sacred pattern of the order of the planes may not sound so severe to an outsider, but to a Rosicrucian, now dependent on the organization, this is a powerful threat. Remember that a Rosicrucian believes that his fundamental connection to God is linked by his association with the egregore of a mork. Now that is deep. That is deep because you've got these people getting into this and thinking that their true way to God and salvation is through this institution. If that's not a cult, I don't know what is. And the Rosicrucians are just a very well-organized cult, very well-studied. Uh, they have these monographs. It's kind of like, it's a mystery school. It is a true, true mystery school because you have all these things that you have to study. And I know that um, Lux from the Occult Rejects talked about all the studying that he had to do with the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. So a Mork institution comes out of that because, of course, their founder was a Magus in the Order of the Golden Dawn. So he says, many times a Mork is a member's first pass at this type of teaching or organization. When this is the case, a Mork's claims tend to go unquestioned especially when information coming from ordinary scientific and religious circles is subtly questioned. Since a Mork has its unique calling in the world, 
other Rosicrucian orders are considered to be pale imitations at best, if not outright frauds. So by the time a neophyte, you know, the beginner, begins to question a mork, the order has created many stumbling blocks inside his mind. To question a mork's authority becomes dangerous and even treasonous. The initiate looks at a mork as the only source of this super sensible knowledge. A mork tells their initiates that these great developments can be obtained only with the genuine Rosicrucian teaching. And I think back to everything we read about Freemasonry and having to obey and order, you know, and, and you agree by the oaths to obey the Lodge no matter what. And so I think that's one of the keys to these, these cults and secret societies. He's just talking about the first exercise, exercise one, which is on the aura. He said he first witnessed a human aura when he was in a social security office. And he said it disturbed him so badly that he had to leave without doing his business. So, you know, one can see, and I'm not saying that people don't have an aura. I think they do. Like when you see someone who's angry or really upset or really worried, you know, it's almost like you can see an aura about them. Now, is that through the power of suggestion and you're just kind of, you are feeling those vibes in the in their bodily behavior and in their mannerisms, or can you see an aura? I've never seen one with my own eyes. I've never seen a glow or a color coming off of anyone. But obviously, as humans, you can see, especially if you know someone and they're acting out of character, that they're not behaving as usual and. You can kind of get a vibe of what's going on, whether it's anger, fear, you know, something uh, that's going on that they're just worried about, those type of things. So, again, was it the power of suggestion? Did he really see an aura? Or the, through the power of suggestion from Amork's teachings, was it just messing with his head? You know, that's me asking that question. He doesn't say that. Uh, he says, in order to create a compliant and highly suggestible membership, certain elements of indoctrination need to be set in place. Uh, one of them is loaded language. And, you know, going back to the Freemasons, uh, kind of the kings of loaded language, uh, they have so many words that are specific to masonry, but Rosicrucians do have some of that as well. He says, in which cult members use special words like the cosmic instead of God to give a certain flavor to the cult language. Loading the language as members continue to formulate their ideas in the group's jargon, this language serves the purpose of constricting members' thinking and shutting down critical thinking abilities. At first, he says, translating from their native tongue into group speak, forces members to censor, edit, and slow down spontaneous bursts of criticism or oppositional ideas. Now, one thing, I'll stop quickly here. One thing that I noticed when I was trying to find out more information and trying to find out a way to buy these books, I started getting into these uh, different forums because you can't hardly find anything out about Pierre. 
Freeman, he, he's disappeared on Facebook. He's disappeared on Instagram. He's disappeared on Twitter. Uh, his Twitter is still up, but the, I don't think there's been any anything on there new since 2017. So I started finding these forums where people were saying that Amork bought up all of the paperbacks and they were taken down from places like Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Books a Million. So you can't buy the books anymore. So I, I don't know, man. This, this uh, Pierre guy seems to have fallen off the face of the earth. But um, I think it's very interesting when he's talking about group speak. He says that helps them to cut off and contain negative or resistive feelings. Eventually speaking in cult jargon is second nature and talking with outsiders becomes energy consuming and awkward. Soon enough, members find it most comfortable to talk only among themselves in the new vocabulary. To reinforce this, all kinds of derogatory names are given to outsiders. They're called wags. Systemites, reactionaries, unclean, or even satanic. And we learned in the one book about Michael Aquino that he called normal people the world of horrors. And, you know, I can kind of see that. It, it's a joke that there's so many, if you want to call them normies, just your average citizens who are kind of unaware of so many things. So he says this, and this... I think can apply again to other cults and secret societies, mystery schools. Members are made to feel part of an elite core of mankind. This feeling of being special and of participating in the most important acts in human history with a vanguard of committed believers is the strong emotional glue to keep people sacrificing and working hard. And I'll add this and paying those dues. Amork affirms that the world as we know it is non-existent. And this goes right back to the Kabbalion and a lot of these occult teachings. And, you know, I understand that occult, again, just means hidden and not everything hidden is evil. But I think when you teach people, as I've said before, that the world is non-existent, there's no such thing as reality, you know, everything, the dualism, everything kind of equals out in the end, and and so why care? And I think taken to the extremes, that's why you see some of these occults getting into uh, pedophilia and different things like that, because what does it matter? What does it matter? Because none of this really matters. And if you believe in reincarnation, are there really any such things as age? Because everyone is going through these various cycles of life until they get it right. I think we need to think about those things, man. All these things matter. I think we need to look through the eyes of these believers in these different cult teachings to kind of get at the core of why some of the things that we've seen in the last, I don't know, 100 years are going on. These things that we think are just unfathomable to the average person. And so... If the world is non-existent, you know, why does any of it matter? Our vocabulary and use of words do not convey the real nature of things. This is soon followed by the assertion that it is possible to modify the manifestation of matter. Here, Pierre says, Amork lays the foundation to instill in members 
the belief that they, the select people of this earth, can change everything. It contends, using the centuries-old wisdom card, that science has finally localized the different zones of the brain, but the Rosicrucians knew this since antiquity. It promises that in the future, when the member gets the sixth temple degree, previous knowledge about health from antiquity will be passed on to the member to help treat a great number of sicknesses. Now I want to apply this to things we've read about the Philosopher's Stone. Eliphas Levy talks about the Philosopher's Stone and how they believe, or believed and still do, that once you find the Philosopher's Stone, whether it be a real stone, you know, a real sacred stone, or really it's you building your temple to be clean and perfect, and you reach this godhood, this apotheosis, that all illnesses will be and can be cured. I mean, he says that plainly. And others talk about that and say the same thing. And it's kind of going right back to the New Age part of QAnon. Those that believe that once they go into this thousand-year reign and they have the Nasara Gesara, that all illnesses will be cured. That's what they said, and that's what they believed. All these New Age beliefs are connected. They are all connected, and they're much of the same thing, but there's slight differences and slightly different beliefs in each one. He goes on to say, By affirming reasonableness and freedom, Amor creates a psychological vulnerability in the minds of their students. Their minds are now completely open to the so-called enlightened Rosicrucian methods. In most cults, there is a strong, seemingly rational foundation laid during the early indoctrination phase. One interesting concept brought out in this monograph is the assertion that Rosicrucians have no actual right to property. Anything that a member possesses really belongs to the cosmic or to God, okay? Uh, I think that's interesting too because the more I look into a lot of these, you know, occult secret societies, the more I can see the kind of communist slash socialist flavor of them. I mean, obviously the Christian can say, well, I don't really own anything. God gave me all that I have. And that's one thing. And to be grateful for what you have and obviously we should help those uh, who are in need, if we can at all. But this is a slippery slope when you look at these occult belief systems and you start saying, well, you know, Rosicrucians, they teach that no proper, there's no such thing as property rights. That's exactly what they're saying. And so, you know, who, who has these property rights? Is there anyone who, you know, who they really belong to? And Pierre says, to me, although seemingly idealistic, and really a lot of these belief systems are very idealistic in the long run, and they're not all bad, but a lot of these things they teach are very idealistic, and they don't really apply in a rational way to reality in real life. But 
if there's no such thing as real life, then what does it matter, right? So he says, to me, although seemingly idealistic, this doctrine is an attempt to further obliterate personal identity and freedom. In later degrees, a mark will ask its members to not say I, but say we instead. The we belonging to what, he asks. Perhaps the we of our order? Slowly, individual consciousness is raked over toward the hive mentality. I think it's very important, man. Very important. Because I think that a lot of these groups, again, and we talked about that a little bit uh, in the uh, Temple of Set and in the, in the in the show about Michael Aquino, and I will do a second a second part of that where I talk about some of these things as well. But we learned that they tell you and they preach, especially to the the new initiate, that hey, we're all about individuality and you being you, and uh, you know not being held back, you know. Um, and Thelema, right? The law of Thelema, do as thou will, shall be the whole of the law, or whatever. So they teach that, they say that, right? In the beginning, but then it's a slow indoctrination process into the hive mind and the oneness, which they really are all about, and that's what they're teaching in the long run, that we're all one. Yeah, and, and again... For you new listeners, I'll say, of course, the idea of oneness is great, and wouldn't it be awesome if we could be like that? But it's not realistic, and if we're not careful, we'll be sucked into this collectivism idea, which is akin to communism and socialism. And, uh, you know, that's not going to work out, because it never has. And the whole of humanity, I don't care what they say about Egypt, I don't care what they say about Sumeria. This is not the way mankind has worked out. So, anyway, I just wanted to mention that. Um, he says, institutions of the theurgical and esoteric nature that have genuine affiliation don't promote themselves openly on the net like others do, and they are certainly not a mork despite the latter being one of the most known Rosicrucian affiliations in the world. So, yeah, I mean, I'm work for years. They used to take out, and I don't know if they still do, but I've read in the research that they would take out whole-page articles or spreads in popular newspapers to get new initiates. So it's not like... You know, there's this, it's an actual secret brotherhood. Because all I did to get their first PDF, I think it's called Mastery of Life, was sign up by email. And they sent me the PDF, or the link to the PDF. But, of course, you can find all of these lessons online. And if anybody wants to look at them and research them, after this show, just holler at me. I'm going to have a ton of show notes in this show. Uh, I'm really working on... The shows I'm working on, guys, I'm really putting my heart and soul into it. I really want it to, I want them to be a learning process for you guys to help you to understand that I, I believe 
we are controlled by these occult groups and people with these occult mindsets. They know the techniques and they have been using them to control societies going back to at least Egypt. Uh, so I think that the more we find out and, and learn about these techniques and what they believe and how they use them on initiates, the more we'll recognize how our societies are being controlled and, and things are being manufactured and you know large sums of people are being manipulated. It goes right into psychology. Psychology is occult to the core. So I think we need to uh, really look into that. So I'm giving you guys, I'm going to try to give you really intricate, deep shows for the next however long I can, Jesus willing. And I'm going to provide you with a lot of links so those of you who are super inquisitive can take them and, and do your own research. And, and you can see that I'm not lying I'm not trying to indoctrinate you. I'm not trying to fill you with propaganda. You can look and see what these people actually believe for yourself. And so I, I don't know about uh, Leo Zagami. Uh, you know, he's written all these books about the Illuminati. He's supposed to have been an insider. Um, mixed feelings on him from what I know, but I don't know a lot I feel like he could be a shyster. I don't know. His, you know, he called, he's got his middle name here, which I don't know if that's true or not, but it's Lion, as in L-Y-O-N, and the Lion Lodge was a famous Masonic Lodge. Uh, that goes back, Lion, L-Y-O-N, goes back, way back into antiquity, so... But he says in the book, Confessions of an Illuminati, Volume 1, on a Mork, he says, A Mork, just like the OTO, has created a sort of monopoly in this sector, often infiltrating and manipulating smaller orders and affiliations, threatening even lawsuits to stop any form of competition or improper use of their brand of sectarian magic. They are a sort of multinational of the occult and prefers to present itself as an emanation of the false positivity of the New Age era. It is actually an additional tool of manipulation in the hands of the usual suspects. I say whether you agree with him or not, I think he's dead on about that. And so looking at amork.blogspot.com I'm checking out some of their monographs here and uh, let's see here the grade structure so you start off with the neophyte then you have the temple and then you have the Illuminati he says under the Illuminati section the Illuminati proper section includes the 9th, 10th, and 11th degrees it says the esoteric hierarchy section includes the 12th degree as an introduction to a an entirely different and new section called the Ordo Summon Bonum. The Ordum Summum Bonum section that has a subsection in it and it's entitled The Plains and that was created by Herbert Spencer Lewis's son Ralph Lewis 
and the initiate name Sar Validivar during his period as a Mork Imperator. 1939-1987. That was a long time. Those degrees are purely philosophical in nature and discuss the nature of the cosmic and its natural laws. And I won't go into a lot of this stuff because I kind of got into this already with the first and second atriums, third atrium and the introduction series. But he does get into the temple section, which I didn't mention. And the first temple degree, the Zelator, or later the Junorius, and now it's called the Studiosus. But you learn about structure of matter, positive and negative as vibratory polarities, electricity and magnetism, electromagnetism and their Rosicrucian definition, subatomic particles, elements, material alchemy. Second temple degree, or theoricious, or uh, it's cosmic consciousness, our objective and subjective consciousness, mental and sensory illusions, imagination and memory, physical, psychic, and spiritual influences on the subconscious, psychology and mysticism. Okay. Third temple degree, you are the practicus, cosmic purpose of life, vital force of life and reproduction, cellular life, living in non-living matter, incarnation of the soul, transition of the soul, initiatic aspects of death. It just goes on and on, guys. The fourth degree, philosophus, nomina and phenomena, natural symbols, artificial symbols, mystical symbols, sacred architecture, vital life force and living soul, cycles of life and the constant states of flux, in the fifth temple degree, you get into a bunch of the old philosophers like Solon and Pythagoras, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, different things like that. Uh, it goes on the sixth, the seventh temple degree, eighth temple degree. I'm not going to bore the crap out of you with that. It goes all the way up to the Illuminati section. The Illuminati section in the introduction to Zoroastrianism, the Tibet ancient mystery schools of Atlantis, Egypt, and the Essenes. It just goes on and on, dude. Going to the 12th degree, the Illuminati and later, with esoteric hierarchy, it's currently called Illuminatus Exemptus. You get into Christian Rosencruz and the Rosicrucian teachings. You get into the Cosmic Masters, El Moriah, Saint Germain, that's obviously related to Theosophy. It goes into celestial hierarchy, esoteric hierarchy, mystical silence, cosmic consciousness, sun cycles. Uh, it goes on and on. And then it talks about the Ordum Summum Bonum section. This order is considered by a Mork as a totally separate order, but the student automatically starts to receive the monographs related to that degree or section as soon as they've finished receiving the previous degree or the 12th degree. That section was conceived to go more in-depth into philosophical questions about the deity, the laws of nature, moral and ethics applying the summum bonum principle, the principle of a common understanding of the basic experiences of human life. Each plane represents a group of certain principles and experiences of life which jointly the student needs to study and understand. 
then it says at the end here, Plane 1 to 9 degrees, the metaphysical lectures related to the Rosicrucian ethics and how to achieve the summum bonum. And that's in my show notes under the blogspot.com. I mean, I wanted to go into detail here because it helps us to understand. And you can see with all those different degrees... And like I said, I'm I'm sure that you can learn a lot from those degrees if that's the way you want to go. But I also would presume that much of that is needless and probably really won't help you in life, probably only confuse you. But it's certainly a great way to keep people paying those dues for years and years so they will have something more to learn or to be promised that they're going to learn more and more and eventually become illuminated. You will eventually become God. So that's very convenient there. It's like the carrot on the stick, right? All right, guys, I'm going to stop it right there because we have covered a lot of territory. Uh, As always, I want to thank you once again for listening, taking the time to hang out with me. I hope you got something out of this show. I want to thank my patrons. I want to thank, as always, the great people who support me. I'd like to welcome Greg to the fold and Aaron as well. I want to thank Kilowatt, Cody, Sir Tim of the Tunnels, Damon, Aaron, David, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence, and James. And now I want to also tell you guys, if you haven't checked it out yet, go over and listen to Jack's episodes on Laurel Canyon, based on uh, the Dave McGowan book, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. That's a big book, and if any of you haven't read it, Jack does a fantastic job of going through that and really kind of explaining a lot of the controversies and the most important parts, the highlights of the book. So I definitely would recommend you checking out those episodes. And I want to thank also my friends at AlternateCurrentRadio.com. I appreciate their support. I want to thank Fringe Radio Network for posting up the Oddcast. I want to thank all of you guys who have supported me and helped me out. I hope you guys are having a good week and a good summer. Please stay tuned for part two and all the other good shows that I hope to have you very soon. I've been kind of teasing some stuff, so I'll continue to do so because I'm working hard on it. I've got a show about Theosophy and Helena Blavatsky. I've got a show about the Shriners and their secret inner orders. I've got a show I'm working on about Carlos Castaneda, the infamous New Age author. And I've got a show about the Council of Nine, just to name a few. So I think you're going to enjoy what I have in mind and in store for you. Uh, Also look soon for part two on the Temple of Set and Michael Aquino. And I thank you so much for taking the time to listen once again. I hope you have a great week and I'll talk to you soon. Cheers and blessings and remember, their order is not our order. See you guys.